Well, we are finishing up the, the book of Matthew. Let me see if I can get that in focus. We really are flying through the Bible <laughs> in this series. But it's, it gives a good bird's eye view of the whole the whole picture. Um, these last few chapters, of course, are at the very end. Um, this is what people call the Passion Week. What, what, what is the, when, this is, of course, not quite a Bible question, but it's sort of, what, what, what do we mean when we, when we call this Jesus' passion? That seems, you, you may have heard of passion plays that they perform. What, what, it's, a, it's a very unusual word, use of the word passion. What does it mean? It means suffering. It's an old fashioned word that means suffering. So when it talks about Passion Week, it's talking about his week of suffering. It started on Sunday. What what was the event on Sunday of that week? The entrance into Jerusalem. Yeah. That that was the triumphal entry riding on the donkey. On Monday he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday he had a bunch of debates with the um, scribes and Pharisees. They were trying to trap him, you know, taxes and, and question of resurrection and all that. And um I think I we, we can't be certain about the um I don't think we can be certain about the chronology, but I think that we are beginning in chapter 24 with uh, what he said at the end of Tuesday of that week. Um, All right, so uh, chapter 24, the future destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, When I say future, I mean future from Jesus' standpoint. What what year was this prediction fulfilled? Yeah, 70 A.D. was when the when it was destroyed. So, uh, approximately how many years from when Jesus predicted it? Forty. Yeah, about forty years. And um, the strange thing, I, um, I'll just mention. I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was Josephus that said that he was talking about the. Um, the, the the fire of God that was in the most holy place. You know, how that, the fiery pillar that led the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. Well, once they, once they built the temple, God's presence went into the temple. Remember when it was so glor- glorious the priests couldn't even go in. But for most of the time, you had that fire that was just in the whole, most holy place. And, and who was the only one that would ever get to see that? The high priest, yeah. But according to Josephus, the fire disappeared 40 years before the temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the Gospels about that, although there is the veil being torn in two. But, um, yeah, it was um, kind of odd the way all these things come together. <laughs> and Josephus did not believe in Jesus. You know, He, he just reported that because the, you know, the forty years would be symbol would 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 represent God's judgment upon the people. Well, in in chapter twenty four, they were they were leaving, I think, for the evening, and the disciples pointed something out to them. What was that? Ralph. 
Uh, no, that's that's another story. This is in chapter twenty-four, verse one. Under yeah, the temple buildings. You know, um, you know, I think they were just saying, "Well, look at the beauty here. This is just wonderful." And uh, I got a picture here, and of course, it is not the picture of the original temple because that <laughs> that got destroyed. This is a model. I, I'm I believe it's is the model actually exists in Jerusalem outdoors model. Um, if you look really closely back in the background, you can see people standing back there looking at this model. This is this is what's called Herod's Temple. Herod the Great, the guy that killed the babies when Jesus was born, he's the one that spent a huge amount of money um, fancying up the temple. And um, I don't know how accurate this is. I mean, I'm sure the guy tried to do it the best job he could, but it's only so much that we even know about it. But I thought it gave kind of an idea. You know, the disciples are looking at something like this. They're seeing the grandeur. And Jesus had just finished saying, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. When they heard that, they would, of course, be, when they hear your house, they would think the temple. So they wanted to show him, you know, look at this building you're talking about. You know, wow. You know. And what did Jesus say in response? Not one stone will be left upon another. That's why we don't have a picture of the real thing. <laughs> um, now he said that apparently when they were still, um, you know, kind of walking out of the temple. So then later on they they were sitting. It said in verse three on the Mount of Olives. And so they they asked a question: Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Um, and so the rest of the chapter is in answer to that question that they asked. And I, I just want to give you a kind of a... Again, we're doing bird's eye views in, in these studies. There, there are two basic positions that you're going to find on this chapter uh, among brethren. And I think you'll find the same two basic pictures among among the denominations in general. I don't know of any of any, really any other position. The the one position is that the disciples asked one question and Jesus answered one question. When's the temple going to be torn down? And and that position says the entire chapter twenty four is only about the temple being destroyed. You know, Jerusalem, you know the whole I mean a lot of went with it. The other position is that the disciples asked more than one question. They may not have realized it, probably did not, but that when they said, when, what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age, that was not the same question as when will these things happen? In other words, the, the temple being destroyed. You can see how from with the disciples' very limited viewpoint at that time, they would have seen the two as being the same. And yet, they could well be two different things. And so, and that, that position says that the chapter is about two totally different things, although they are related in the sense that Jesus is the one doing them both. And the one is kind of foreshadowing the other. Now, this is, this is not an uncommon thing. We've seen this in the Old Testament where a prophet will talk about what's coming upon the people of his day. And then, in a matter of one verse, he'll switch and suddenly be talking about something that's not going to happen for hundreds of years after that. And 
He's not really changing subjects, though, because both have to do with the same fundamental issue. And so that position on Matthew 24 is saying that some statements in Matthew 24 apply only to the destruction of Jerusalem, and other statements in Matthew 24 apply to when Jesus is coming back again in the future. Um, I would say among our brethren, probably um, the two the two view the two questions view is more common, but there are an awful lot of brethren that, that take the, the just the one question view. And in the denominational world in general, um, the the two view the two two question view is almost universal. You, I think you'd find it pretty rare to find people that think that in the general denominational world think that this is only talking about one thing. But I, I want to give you that that top view so that you'll understand when you talk with it can when you when you have different people have different views it can be very confusing when you talk with one person and then talk with another unless you understand that they're they're coming from two rather different positions and and that you may not be able to harmonize everything the two people say just because they just they're just looking at it very differently I'll mention one more thing before I get into it and that is that there is a very, very small minority among Church of Christ that take a very, very radical view. Um, this, this view only came, came about in the last few decades. It's been in my lifetime. And that view is that nothing in the Bible predicts anything beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that specifically believed that, but I have read about some people like this, and and they'll say that um, even the judgment scene when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, that all was fulfilled by A.D. 70. Um, Paul's predictions, the the entire book of Revelation, everything you can find in the whole Bible was fulfilled by A.D. 70, and there's nothing in the Bible that predicts anything beyond that. Now, as I said, that's a very extreme position, and and uh, I view the people teaching that as just being false teachers, and they've split churches over it. it it's um, you know you don't you don't want to get mixed up with that kind of a doctrine, but it's kind of the logical conclusion of of trying to limit what some of these prophecies are talking about. All right. Um, Let's see here. Um, verse 6, You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet to end. Um, when you read Josephus, his descriptions of, of what led up to the final destruction of Jerusalem, there were certainly lots of wars and and all kinds of things like this going on before before it finally came to a head. Um, verse 15 therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains now I think most people would would, no matter what, where they're coming from most people would, ha- would have to recognize that this, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 since when Jesus comes again, it's not going to be a problem just for people in Judea. It's going to be a problem for people all over the whole world. I mean, 
that's so this is definitely ta- talking about when this ar- when the Roman army, the abomination of desolation, when the Roman army comes, then anyone that's living in the area of Judea, especially Jerusalem, has to get out. And and we we do have a record from some early Christian writers that the Christians all did get away. That when that happened, they there were still Christians in Jerusalem up to AD seventy or or well actually a little bit before that, but because the Roman it took a while to conquer Jerusalem. But when they saw the Roman armies coming, they were ready. The Jews who weren't believers, they all ran to get into the city because that was the walled city. That was where they'd be safe. But the Christians knew that that's exactly where you don't want to be. And they, they ran. And they got away. And I guess not, no Christian died in that destruction. Yeah. But weren't there two occasions when the Roman army came? On the first occasion it was withdrawn. A couple of years later it came from... I don't know how you, you you are correct. There 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 was a gap. I don't know that it was a, a two year gap, but it was a gap. Um, and that was and and that's what gave the Christians the notice. I um, I don't know I don't know whether they left when they saw the Roman armies the first time because they may have come in so suddenly that they didn't have a chance. But once they once they left for a while, the Christians knew it's time to get out. I think that those guys that took it literally on the house stuff, flee immediately. And then they see that the Roman army withdrew. I don't think the Christians came back in after that. I think they understood. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how... um, And we don't have enough details to say how urgent it was when they left and all that. Um, the account we have comes from a hundred years or more later, um, but it'd be hand, you know it'd been handed down by word of mouth to that point. Um, now, verse thirty-four: Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that again, it is the, these things would be the things concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. That generation, there were still, of course, since this happened only 40 years later, there would have been plenty of people still alive from that generation when it happened. But then he says in verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Those people who take the two prediction view would say that that passage saying no one knows is is talking about his future return, what we call the second coming. <clears throat> because clearly for the first one, Jesus did indicate that he knew what was going to happen. I mean, he already said it's going to happen in the time of this generation. <clears throat> but the second one, he doesn't know. He couldn't tell you whether it's going to be in a hundred years or a thousand years or ten thousand not even angels know, only the Father, he, had, he reserved that for himself. <clears throat> and so the, if we take the two-position view, the rest of the chapter is dealing with what's going to come upon all of us one day. The Lord's going to come. He's going to say, it's, it's, it's now over and it's time to give account. And so beginning in verse 42 and going through the entire chapter 25, 
Jesus is dealing with these with parables to tell us to be on the alert, be ready for when He comes back again. Now, as I said earlier, there are some very extreme views that would make all of this just talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Even this third, par- the fourth par- parable, third one in chapter 25 about the judgment when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will gather. They say that still, that still was in A.D. 70. Um, but again, I don't know of anyone, I've never met anyone personally that t- takes that view. That just is way over the top. But let's look at these because they, in my judgment, these very clearly apply to us and we need to be very concerned about it. Um, in verse 42, Therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Um, and verse 44, For this reason you also must be ready for the Son of Man's coming in an hour when you do not think He will. When we, when we think, oh, you know, I can just relax from now. You know, later on I'll worry about serving God, but for now I've, I've got more important things to do. The Lord's going to come when we don't expect. I think that applies even to coming for one individual person. You yourself, He might come for you and, and take your life tonight, yet He might not take the rest of us for some time to come. <clears throat> Though, ultimately, this parable is talking about the true second coming. Sometime in the future. I don't know how long it will be because it's been over 2,000 or it's been almost 2,000 years already. But at some point, He is going to come back and most people will be very surprised. So this parable starting in verse 45 is of a slave. And what's the job that the pastor has given the slave to do? He has authority over all the other slaves. Yeah. So he's one of the spiritual leaders, the leader of the congregation. Um in Old Testament terms, um, he would have been, you know, one of those shepherds of Israel that the prophets were always <laughs> complaining about because they weren't doing their job. But they're still shepherds of spiritual Israel today, and, and sometimes they behave like this. They they think their position is just to feed themselves instead of to feed the flock. So the warning is. If he thinks his master's going to be a long time and he starts abusing the position, his master's going to come and surprise him and he's going to be in terrible trouble. So, we go then to chapter 25. Boy, I didn't get that thing focused at all. That's... Well, that's better anyway. And in chapter 25, we have three parables. Um, in the first one, I've got a... This is a very famous parable. The painting's not famous, but the parable's famous. I thought the painting kind of reflected the kind of the emotion of the, of, of the moment when um, the five of these women realize, whoops, we're out of oil. <laughs> hey, quick, let us have some of your oil. And the other people, of course, what are they saying? We don't have enough to yeah. share. We don't have enough to share. We just got enough for ourselves. And so, when the when the uh, foolish ones finally get get their oil bought and arrive at the building where the wedding's taking place, in verse eleven, Lord, Lord, open up for us. What's the answer given? I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So that parable is hinting that it may take longer than people think. Because five of those people thought, you know, it, it, they can't possibly take this long. They're just not prepared to wait that long. 
but did, as we find. So then he tells another parable. This is a very famous one. What's this next one called? Talents. The parable of the talents. What was a talent in those days? Yeah, it was a weight, generally of silver. In our weight, it would be about 75 pounds of silver. Um, one of the footnotes I, I was looking at, maybe in, maybe in this Bible now. Yeah, this the New American Standard says the talent was worth about 15 years wages of a laborer. So, a lot of money. The one guy got five of these. The, the second guy, what did he get? Two. And the third guy got one, yeah. So the guy with five, what did he do? Made more money. Made more money. He made five more. It's double the money. And the guy with two, what did he do? He got two more. Doubled his money. The guy with one, what did he do? He buried it. Yeah. <laughs> he buried it in the ground. Um, when his master comes back, his master will have his money. <clears throat> and... To his surprise, what was the master's attitude about this? Should have done something with it. Yeah, should have done something with it. He, he accused them of being lazy. And, and that's a concern. We all, every one of us has to look at ourselves and ask, am I being lazy? Because we can be very, very busy people, but not busy with what God wants us to be. We've got this concern, that concern. You know, Before you know it, day's finished. Before you know it, a week's over. Um, and a year and then a lifetime's over and this guy all he did was just make sure the master would get what he gave him back and the master we have is not going to be con- content with that he wants more back than what he gave us because he gave us something that we're supposed to be trading and getting gain with I don't mean they're all supposed to become business people but he gave us spiritual things that we're supposed to be making an increase with so finally, at the end, they take away the one talent from the guy that was given one, and they gave it to who? The other guy who had now had ten. He already showed he knew what to do with things when God gave it to him, so <coughs> give him some more and he'll make use of that. So he gives the principle, verse 29, um, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so then finally we come to the, uh, the third of these parables in chapter 25. This is the judgment scene, separating the sheep from the goats. And he, he addresses the good people first. And in verse 35, what does he say they did? They, they fed him when he was hungry, gave him a drink when he was thirsty, gave him clothing when he was naked, visited him when he was sick, Came to him when he was in prison. And what what's the righteous reaction to this? <laughs> when did we ever see you like it? <laughs> I don't remember doing this. And of course, the answer is, and when you did it to the, to the um, uh, one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So then he turns to the the bad people, tells them. Same list, but they hadn't done any of it, and they were also surprised. When did they see you like that? And verse 45, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into a way into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
So now we come to the Passover, the arrest, and, and the first of his trials. Um, it doesn't start exactly with the Passover, although he does say in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Um, so I suggested that he was saying these things on a Tuesday, but two days would put it on the Thursday. and no, Nobody knows for sure whether the Passover was on Thursday or was on Friday. It's just, this has been a, a question people have asked down through the years because um, it appears that Jesus took the Passover Thursday night. But then the next day, the priests weren't willing to go in to the governor's house because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. <laughs> so, it's one of those questions I guess we don't have to have the answer for. <laughs> so this is either on Tuesday the Passover or the Thursday, or this is on Wednesday the Passover or it's on Friday. But anyway, it's two days away. Did they count time from like sundown to sundown? Well, they did. They certainly did count it from sundown so that Thursday, they could have killed the Passover lamb on Thursday and they ate it after sundown on Thursday. It would have been Friday. But then you have you still have the question, if, if that was the Passover, then why are the priests saying we want to be able to eat the Passover? They had already eaten it the night before. They, well, not, maybe not everybody did it at the same time. That'll get it. That, for the bird's eye view here, we're not going to get into that detail. <laughs> there have been all kinds of suggestions to try to harmonize those statements. But... We'll just have to leave it at that. Um, but the, Matthew lays a scene here with the chief priests wanting to, they're plotting to try to kill Jesus. But not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Of course, God has a different plan. He knows when they're going to do it. They don't know. And then we have this story, which I think the main reason the story is put in here in verse 6 is because of the effect it had on one of the people who was there. And that one person was Judas. Because what happens here, he's, he's at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, which is the same city that Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in. And I think this is Mary, in fact, who's, who's doing it, although Matthew doesn't tell us. And she pours this very expensive perfume on him. And Jesus says, you know, she's doing it to prepare his body for burial. But in verse 8, the disciples were very indignant. They said, well, why this waste? You know, could have sold this and given it to the poor. Well, Matthew doesn't say it, but the chief person making this argument was Judas because he had the money bag. And it says in the end of verse 14, then, then, one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And it seems like that kind of pushed Judas over the, over the edge made him decide, I'm just going to do something. I'm tired of this. Um... So he's, from then on, he's watching to see when he can catch Jesus. Um, so then they, he has his disciples make arrangements to, for the Passover. And then in verse 20, they, um, they came uh, all together. And in verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And of course, they have the discussion going around about that. Um, then in verses 26, through 29, we have this passage that we're very, very familiar with because it's oftentimes read at the Lord's Supper. Um, Take, eat this in my body, and, and so on. 
Then in verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the tradition was, this was not commanded in the Old Testament, but the tradition was at the end of the, the Passover meal, they would sing a, a hymn. It was one of the Psalms. In fact, um, we even had writing as to which Psalms they would have been likely to have sung at that particular time. And that then marked the end of their Passover service. And so then they could go out and they um, either before they left the, the room or, or afterwards, I don't know which from here, from this account, but he then warns them what's going to happen. He's finished what he needed to do for them. He, he's, he washed their feet, which of course man didn't tell us that. He instituted the Lord's Supper. Now he's got to get them ready for what's going to happen. And so he says, you're all going to fall away because of me. It's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We read that passage back when we were doing Zechariah. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And this is, of course, the famous story when who, who objects that he's not going to fall away? Yeah, Peter, yeah. And, but in fact, at the end of verse 35, all the disciples said the same thing. They all said they were willing to die for him. But he was just kind of the loudest spokesman. And so then, in verse 36, where did they go? Yeah, they went to a place called Gethsemane. This is a map of Jerusalem here on the left. On the right is the Mount of Olives. And fairly low on the, on the mountainside is this place called Gethsemane. My understanding is the word Gethsemane means olive press. Um, and of course you can imagine if it's called the Mount of Olives, they had, it's called that because they grew olive trees there. And if you grow olive trees, you're going to need to have a press to squish the oil out of the olives. So this garden is named olive presses so he, he went there um, and obviously it was a place that was well known to his disciples because Judas knew to take the priest to that spot apparently he had gone there before um, maybe that's where he was when he told them about the destruction of Jerusalem because he said they were on the Mount of Olives at that time um, and this is of course a famous story of, of Jesus <coughs> praying um, my Father, if it's possible, this cup pass me, yet not as I will, but as You will. And of course, what were Peter and James and John doing while He was praying? Sleeping. They were sleeping. And, I, and I, I think Matthew is trying to point out the big disconnect between what they thought of themselves and what they were in reality. And Jesus explains that in verse 41. He says, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And all of us can relate to that. I mean, all of us feel the same way. We would gladly die for Jesus. And yet, how often do we get in situations that are far, far less of a temptation than actually dying for Him, and yet we find ourselves messing up? It's the, it's the, spirit, the spirit wants to do what's right, but the flesh is weak. And, and we just, um, we, we can re, we, we're not ready to throw any stones at Peter. We're thankful the story's there. It gives us encouragement because otherwise none of us would have any hope. So then, in verse 47, Judas arrives. And what was the sign Judas had arranged? Yeah, the famous kiss of betrayal. Hail, Rabbi! And he kissed him in verse 49. And so they have a bit of discussion with someone drawing a sword. Matthew doesn't tell us who. Anyone know who it was drew the sword? Yeah, yeah. John tells us that. Put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. 
And he says he could call a whole army of angels to take care of him if he needed it. But how then must will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? And so then he goes to the first trial, the house of Caiaphas. Now on the map, it, has, it says house of Caiaphas question mark. They think that might be where it was. We don't, we don't know for sure. <clears throat> but he was taken, it was of course a palace, I mean a, a mansion. Um, he had lots of servants and all this. Um, he, was made, he was getting rich off of the temple trade that Jesus had abused so, so, so violently. And they don't get anywhere with their false teach, there's false witnesses. So finally in verse 63 he says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. What does adjure mean? To put under oath, yes. I want you to swear by God, tell me the truth, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And that's the first time Jesus answers any of their questions. He says, you've said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Where is he getting that quotation from out of the Old Testament? Yeah, that's the famous Daniel 7 where the Son of Man um, sat at the right hand of, of God and judged the nations. And of course the high priest is all upset about this. In parentheses, he's really very happy. <laughs> and they start abusing him. And then at the end of the chapter you have this story about Peter. And the sad thing, I'm sure that Peter could never read that without crying after that. And just He went out and wept bitterly when he realized what had happened. Alright, so um, then we come to chapter 27. Trial before Pilate. Matthew only gives us two trials. One before Caiaphas and one before Pilate. <clears throat> they, they, um, actually, there was, a, there was a, another trial. He mentioned it in verse 1. Just very briefly. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death. That was actually the official trial of the Sanhedrin. They weren't allowed to condemn a, a criminal at night. They had, to, they had to have the trial during the daytime. So they had that quick um, show trial the very first thing in the morning. And then they tied him up, take, took him to Pilate. Judas, meanwhile, he has remorse. What's he do with the 30 pieces of silver? Throws it into the temple. Yeah, throws it into the temple. The chief priests, though, they got a problem. I mean, normally if you throw something in the temple, you would put it in the temple treasury. But what's the problem? What? Yeah, we can't. This is... Now, I don't know that the... I mean, in the Old Testament, it talked about certain kinds of money that couldn't be taken to the temple. Primarily, um, money that was in service to an idol. I don't know that it specifically mentions this, but I think they're correct that um, that's not the kind of money you could put in there. Of course, they hadn't worried too much about that when they took the money and gave it to Judas. I don't know if they got it out of the temple treasury, but um, they're, they're hypocrites of what they are. Just <laughs> straining out the gnat, swallowing the camel. But they ended up, what did they do with the money? They bought a field with it. And the field was properly called what? Potter's field. Well, they bought it from a potter. So it was a potter's field, but they, it was popularly called what? <coughs> yeah, field of blood was what it was popularly called. Because, what? After that, it was called field of blood. Yeah, well, you're thinking of Acts chapter 1, and that may be a different field. I don't know. 
Um, there may have been more than one field called field of blood. Um, in Acts chapter 1, Judas went to a field and hanged himself and, and uh, falling, falling headlong, his bowels gushed out, it says, and, that, and so that field was called field of blood. I don't know if they're the same, the same ones. They might be. Um, but you see, a potter's field, a, pot, a potter's field is where the potter goes and gets clay to make his pots. But once he gets rid of all the clay, the, the field is pretty much useless. You could buy it really cheap. And um, that's what they did. Just bought a really cheap field. And what, do you, what are you going to do with it? Just bury strangers that no one comes to claim the body. Um, well, back now we go to the trial before Pilate. And um, he, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is verse 11. And what did Jesus say? Jesus yeah, he agreed with that. But now the chief priests make all these accusations. And what is the answer to the accusations? Not a word, and, and just astonishes Pilate. But it doesn't make Pilate convinced the guy's guilty. I mean, here he is. All he hears is one side. Jesus doesn't answer a thing, and Pilate is absolutely convinced of what? He's innocent. <laughs> this is just. I mean, this has to be the most amazing trial Pilate's ever been in. And I'm sure he just wished he hadn't been in this one. <clears throat> And he, he tried different things to try to get out of this. Matthew doesn't give them all. Matthew doesn't mention about sending him off to Herod. But he does mention the one about Barabbas. He, he had this custom of, of releasing one of the one prisoner or whoever they chose at the feast of Passover. So he was, he was trying to get him to pick Jesus. So instead of saying, hey, of all the prisoners I got, which one do you want me to release? He only gave him a choice of two, which is pretty, which was unusual. That wasn't the normal way he would do it. And he tried to pick the worst guy he could find, plus Jesus. <laughs> Barabbas is a murderer, just a terrible guy. And who do they pick? Yeah, they pick Barabbas. Well, what do I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What's the answer? Yeah. And so then, Pilate took a bowl and he washed his hands. He's washing his hands of this matter. And he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And so what do the people say in verse 25? Blood be on us and our children. Yes, blood be on us and our children. And of course, when you, when you read about the destruction of Jerusalem, you realize just how literally they got their request. His blood really was on them and on their children. But it's also on Pilate. He did not. He wasn't. You can't wash your hands of responsibility like that. So he had him scourged and handed over to be crucified. In verse 27, then the soldiers, they had a lot of fun mocking him and being cruel to him. In verse 32, they're headed out and they, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon and they made him bear the cross. You may, you may recall in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said that if anyone forces you to carry something one mile, go with him two. That this was a, a something that don't, that only applied in that society where the Romans were allowed to force anybody they met to carry something for them up to one mile. And um, although the, the prisoner was normally supposed to carry his own cross, he would only actually carry the one the, the cross piece. He didn't carry the whole thing. The, the, the vertical piece was left at the place of crucifixion. He but the, the condemned man would carry the cross piece. They would actually tie his hands to it and, and he'd carry it on his back. 
But apparently Jesus didn't have the strength to do that. We don't have it. We don't have details, but the fact that they made Simon carry it indicates that they knew Jesus wasn't going to make it out to the place of crucifixion if they didn't do something. And they weren't going to do it. So this this poor guy Simon, he knows nothing about Jesus. He's coming into town, and now suddenly his whole day's interrupted. He's got to carry. And imagine the embarrassment of having to carry a cross through the streets as procession, and you know and he, he, I'm sure he's thinking the whole time, I'm not the one, I'm not the one. <laughs> but interesting enough, it appears just from some these casual mentions that he became a believer. And I, so my guess is he stayed and watched the crucifixion and learned some, a lot more than what he might have thought he was going to learn from, from the next few hours. Because I think it's Mark who tells us who his sons are. And Mark wouldn't be telling that if if he didn't know that Christians knew those people. So then they crucified him. Um, on the map, we've got this says Golgotha question mark. This is the traditional location. We know it. We know Golgotha, the place of skull, had to be outside the city walls, and the dash lines are where they think the walls were in Jesus' day. And this is the traditional place of crucifixion. That might it might be the place. We don't know for sure. There are some Jewish tombs nearby, and and we know that there had to be a tomb not too far from there because um, they didn't have much time left to get him into the tomb when he died. Um, so they crucified him. They divided their garments among them, and then you've got the people mocking him, the chief priests. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Of course, they're talking about his prediction of his resurrection, which is going to come very soon. Um, and then in verse 45, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was what? Darkness over the land. And then finally, at the end of the time, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is that quoted from? Psalm 22, yeah. Um, but I don't think he was saying it just to quote the psalm. I think he was saying it because that really was the way he felt. Um, but finally, in verse 50, he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And when did they come out of the tombs? After Jesus' resurrection, yes. Matthew's the only one that records that story. But the centurion, when he saw this, what did he think? Surely this is the Son of God. Yeah, surely this is the Son of God. And then in verse 57, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body. and he, So he wrapped it up in a clean linen cloth, put it in a brand new tomb. He had, this was his own tomb. He was rich. He was going to have a nice tomb. Nobody had ever used the tomb before. So put him in it. The, lady, the women saw where he was buried so they could come back on the first day of the week. And then one more story at the end of chapter 27. The chief priests are worried that what might happen... His disciples would take the body out of him. Yeah, they might try to perpetrate a fraud and steal the body and pretend like he'd been raised. So they did a wonderful service to all believers ever after because they made sure that that didn't happen, couldn't have happened. 
They were Roman soldiers, carefully trained not to let you know any peasants come through. And so here we come to chapter twenty-eight, the resurrection, and this is somewhat what the tomb looked like when the women got there on the first day of the week. They were saying, you know, although Matthew doesn't record this, they were asking, well, who's going to roll away the stone? They got there and the stone had been rolled away and there was an angel sitting on it. I don't have the angel in the picture. Actually, I don't know if this is the right tomb. There were a lot of tombs back, back then that had this, you know, the rich people. The stone would have been about, about as tall as a person, maybe a little bit taller. There's a big stone. To get in the tomb, you had to bend over to get, get in. It wasn't tall enough to stand up in there. I don't think you could stand up even after, after you got in. But the women came and, you know, the angel appeared, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for He is risen. Just as He said, come see the place where He was lying. And then go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead and behold, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. So they went to tell the disciples and then on the way, Jesus met them and He talked with them. Meanwhile, the guard went back to the chief priests and what did the chief priests do about this? Paid them a lot of money. They paid him a lot of money to lie. Yeah. Do, do you remember? And I don't. This is not in Matthew. Um, in one of the Gospels, Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." I don't think that applied to these priests. They knew exactly what they were doing. There were others there who were ignorant, but the priests were not ignorant. They were evil. <laughs> Just, I mean. And and they're they're going to continue this behavior till they till they finally all get destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. It's just terrible. And and I'm sure there was Jews that believed the story, although it was just uh, on the surface it would be absurd. You know, what Roman soldier would ever admit to being asleep on duty? <laughs> what Roman soldier could know what happened while they were asleep on duty? But finally, we get to the Great Commission here in verse 16. And in verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are still in this time period to this day. We are still in the time period where, where all authority has been given to Jesus and He wants us to go everywhere telling everybody about Him and baptizing these people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He's promising that we won't be doing it by ourselves. He's going to be with us to the end of the age. Any questions, comments? All right. Appreciate everyone's help. Thank you.